everyone, I'm back. I'm Lena Abuchamra, host of the Living with Power Hope podcast. I hope you're having an awesome day. Uh, as you know, on the show, I invite a friend, and every week or two, we uh, talk about uh, an aspect of hope. I love hope, the concept that God will do what God has promised He will do, this light at the end of the tunnel, and yet so many of us spend our days uh, oblivious to the hope that God has given us in our life. Well, today's guest might at first sound like the furthest thing away from hope because she has been shedding light on so many dark places in the last year. And yet because of that, we have been able to see hope in the church. And I want to introduce you to my friend, Julie Royce. I'm going to tell you a little bit in a second about how she and I met, but uh, tell you a little bit about her first. She is a graduate of both Wheaton College and the prestigious Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Small fact, I have an MBA from Northwestern, so we have the same alma mater, Judy. Julie, I don't know if you knew that. And for six years, Julie hosted, of course, a live call and talk show on Moody Radio that many of you might be familiar with. It was called Up for Debate, an awesome show, and uh, uh, taken off the air in the last year. We'll talk about why in a minute. Her first book, Redeeming the Feminine Soul, God's Compelling Vision for Womanhood, was published in September of 2017 with Thomas Nelson. If you haven't read that book, you're going to want to. We'll give away a couple copies at the end of the podcast. Um, she uh, has become infamous in the greater <laughs> land of Chicago, if not all of the United States. And we're going to get into all of that. I think this is going to be an exciting show. Uh, I really uh, am looking forward to just talking to her as a friend today. So, Julie, hey, welcome to our podcast. Hey, Janelina, it's great to be with you. And I'm so glad you still call me friend. Um, it's great right. <laughs> recording in the past year or so, but um, it's a joy to be with you. No, listen, we're going to get into that. Tell us first, I always like to start every story on this podcast. I mean, I'm bringing guests that I think are are interesting people to begin with, but really riveted by your walk with the Lord. And sort of want to remind everybody, man, you're a follower of Jesus. So tell us how you came to know. Sure. Well, I was born into a Christian family. My parents were missionaries. I was actually born in Zimbabwe because my dad was a medical missionary there. Uh, for 10 years. They came back when I was like three and a half, four. So I don't know if I can really claim that I'm an MK, but um, <laughs> came back and I, you know, had a wonderful Christian family. Um, they walked the talk in front of me and they loved Jesus and they lived with integrity. And um, I remember when I was six years old, they took us to a revival meeting. We used to go to, I mean, we were at church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, we, uh, Wednesday nights. And whenever there were revival meetings. So I remember one of these, uh, the preacher preached. I have no idea what he preached on. But when he said, come forward, I looked at my daddy and I said, take me up. You know, I want to go forward. And I still remember I was only six years old. And I still remember that that night. And I remember going into a small room with an elder and my dad and praying to receive Christ. And I remember my parents for like the next two weeks, everybody we met, they're like, tell them what happened Sunday night. And so it really solidified oh. that decision I had made. Um, but then it grew in my knowledge of the Lord. I remember in junior high going to my parents and saying, boy, I'm, I don't know if I really believe, you know, how, how can I know that Christianity is true? And I remember they gave me Josh McDowell's uh, book, More Than a Carpenter. And I remember reading that um, just as a kid. And then in senior high, uh, got involved in a youth ministry. It was a great experience. Went off to Wheaton College and had a really tough four years and really struggled with depression and um, had, had kind of a charismatic um, experience right before I went to college and kind of felt at that time that charismatic was a dirty word. And so I kind of sucked that under mm. for four years and, and really kind of had a spiritual 
uh, death. I mean, it was it was really really hard for me, and then that turned into intellectual struggles. And um, I came out of college pretty messed up. Um, got married right before my senior year, so my husband went through this with me, and I didn't know if I believed in Jesus anymore or not, or whether that experience that I'd had with him as a kid, whether that was just you know kind of an emotional thing, an infatuation, and now I was more mature and um, and. And that just wasn't real. And I remember struggling just awful and uh, actually went on a Wednesday evening to Willow Creek Community Church. And it's funny now because now I know stuff was going on at the church at that time that that would have just really grieved me had I known it. But I didn't. And God still worked through imperfect people. But I was there on a Wednesday evening. And I remember we were singing Great is Thy Faithfulness. And I have no other words for it, Lena, other than the Holy Spirit fell on me. and. And I knew I had been searching for him so hard for four years and finding him so distant. And in that moment, he was so real. And I remember just breaking down and and just sobbing. You know, I, I couldn't stop. I'm sure the people next to me thought I was having some sort of <laughs> breakdown. Um, but I knew it was like in that moment, I knew, Lena, that God was real. And I, I it was like that familiar presence that I had experienced. And I don't know why I went through that. But I will tell you, I came out of that knowing that life isn't worth living without Jesus and that I can do it without him and that I didn't want to go forward. Kind of like Moses says, unless you go with me, I won't go out there. And I had that kind of, mm. of experience and it marked me. And that's like almost 30 years ago now. Um, but it, it changed the depression I struggled with, with four years lifted in that moment. Um, and my husband and I got involved in the church and it's, you know, I grew up in the church, but now it meant so much more to me because I saw that this was a living, breathing body of Christ. And, uh, we, we saw dozens of people come to the Lord while we were at Willow Creek. And that was an incredible experience. Um, then went to some youth ministry, um, worked in TV, uh, in a news capacity, got my master's degree. Um, but really took 13, 14 years off to raise kids and um, ended up at Moody Radio, as you know, after they got a little bit older and I felt like I could return to work. And uh, it's been a it's been a very, very interesting ride the past few years to see how um, God's taken me from doing talk radio. And now I'm doing more investigative reporting. But um, Jesus has been so real to me. Well, I, I want to just pause for a second. Uh, first of all, I think it's riveting that your spiritual experience happened at Willow. I really do. And I love that because I think even now we're walking through a lot of, you know, in, in this season, I, I don't know when people will be listening to the podcast, but all of the Harvest brouhaha, I was, I was part of Harvest and just sort of recognizing that so much good can happen in such a difficult um, or or maybe sinful situations. You know, God can still use every part of a place and and I, I it doesn't discount all the good that God has done and I just think that is a really cool thing but I want to kind of go back a bit to this journalism uh, yeah. masters that that you uh, have did you ever I mean now you, you do you know you're in the news and now you're doing so much investigative reporting but when you became a, in school a journalist for that matter what was your dream and aspiration what did you well, think God it's interesting I took an intro to journalism class my senior year at Wheaton College. And I ended up doing with a partner uh, an in-depth report, and we started investigating and actually stumbled on um, some somewhat questionable practices within the missions department at Wheaton and began reporting on it. And 
boy, that was that was tough to do an investigative type uh, report when you're living in the community. And I remember I remember getting crank calls. I remember getting cold stares. I remember losing friends. I mean, it was tough. And but I just had a sense and I, I don't know, Lena, it's like God built into me this justice meter. And when it gets tripped, I just can't let go of it. And when I see there's wrongdoing, there's, there's like this sense that, that God mm. wants me to pursue it. And and it's odd that that kind of hooked me on journalism. But I, it, I just sense that that's where God wanted me to go. And so. Um, did you ever finish the report at, at Wheaton or did they like what happened at the end? I, I finished my report. It was published in the student newspaper. Um, I think a series of three or four reports. And it led to some changes and more transparency. And I, I think it was good. And also even just it was, it was the short term missions program and, you know, how beneficial was it and did it need to be changed? Uh, I remember in a missions professor, I think at the graduate school, wrote me a note afterwards saying that was really an excellent in-depth report. I'm so glad you did that. And <laughs> that made me feel really good. Um, but yeah, so that, well, then I really struggled. I didn't know if I wanted to go into journalism or ministry. And I remember I had actually applied to um, the Dill School of Journalism, where I ended up going, and also Trinity Seminary, and got accepted both places. And mm. I just remember at the time thinking, I'm a woman, really, are there any jobs for me in ministry? And, and so in a way, uh, journalism was sort of my plan B. Wow. Um, but I can see now how God brought those two things together of, of passion for ministry and journalism. And I think he knew what he was doing from the beginning, but I always had kind of a bug for, for investigative journalism. And if I would look to uh, the people that I would say, Oh man, this is what I'd love to do. It would have been Woodward and Bernstein, you know, <laughs> those who uh, ex- exposed Watergate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So going back, even fast forwarding now to sort of your launch into this career in investigative journalism. I remember the year before you wrote the Moody Expose, having a meal with you, we were at the NRB and sort of getting a sense that, you know, you were looking into some stuff, didn't know you much before then, but I was fascinated, A, by your um, courage. I just thought this, it felt a little bit like you were risking a lot for, for doing something that you believed in. And I sort of admired it in a sort of you know, a little bit like, wow, I'm not sure I could do that. And so sort of bring it, you know, briefly, because I want to move to the more recent past, but, but how did that unfold? And, and, and how did you feel compelled to pursue that to the level that you did? Because it ended up costing you your job. And so things were going well for you. You had a great show. And how did your wires get tripped at that point at Moody? Yeah, well, I had known about some stuff. In fact, it's really interesting as we're looking at um, what's happening at Harvest right now. I remember back in 2012 when I discovered that James McDonald was gambling in Vegas and he was on Moody Radio at the time. I remember going to one of the executives at Moody and, and just saying, you know, this this doesn't look good. This, this doesn't seem like a godly man. Godly, I mean, really? Godly people go uh, gambling in Vegas? Uh, it just, it, it didn't smell right. And I remember talking to him and he said, well, don't worry, Julie. Uh, we're meeting with him, with James McDonald, both professionally, but also pastorally. And he's in a really good place. And I was like, oh, oh okay. You know, I mean, I mean, who am I to, to judge? Well, you know, fast forward about a year or so. And uh, soon after Moody had adjusted, and actually I was on the committee that um, recommended changes to the employee standards. And one of those had to do with gambling and removing the gambling prohibition. And I was 
really against it. And the, the recommendation we gave to the ninth floor was ninth floor is management um, was to to leave that in, and they took it out. And I remember just being a little like, well, why did they do that? And um, and then I found out soon after that that um, that our chairman of the board was gambling. Uh, and then I found out that he had been gambling with James McDonald. And and so, I mean, that was back around 2013, I think, um, that I discovered that. And I just remember at the time feeling like this, this just, it was very bothersome to me. But I didn't report anything at the time. And it wasn't until um, it would have been mm-hmm. October, November 2017. And I had a professor come to me and just telling me stories that I just was shocked about, about, because it wasn't, it wasn't the the culture of Moody, I didn't think, but a very, very heavy handed leadership. Her talking about um, there being 30 to 40 professors who had written these letters to the faculty concerns committee. And instead of their concerns being taken seriously, uh, the president had come down really hard and basically closed down all conversation. And they felt like um, those who would complain that maybe some colleagues weren't adhering to the doctrinal statement that instead of being thanked and there being investigations when they would report these things, that instead they would get ostracized for reporting it and the administration would come down really hard on them. So that was my first tip into it. And then I began looking into some of the finances and actually I'd known about uh, Moody giving a half a million dollar loan to the president to buy a million dollar condo. I had known about that for about a year. I sort of stumbled on that information. And I just thought then uh, when we were seeing that the school was having all sorts of financial problems and we had to close the Spokane campus because we were having such trouble, it just seemed very, very odd that that's the way that the trustees, they were actually giving uh, all this money to the president at that point. So there were a number of things that that um, I felt like I got drafted, Lena. I felt like I was in one of those situations, yeah, where um, where I people were coming to me with information and I knew I was getting this information because of the position I was in and they knew me and they trusted me and and I had the skills and the training to do something with it and I had the platform to do something with it too and so I felt really compelled to do something you know I wasn't sure at first what in fact I went I remember uh, in December flying out on my own dime and I flew out a friend of mine too who had done a lot of work with helping trustee boards work through transitions because I realized in that point it was really a crisis. And we flew out to Detroit and met with two trustees and we begged them uh, to make some changes. And um, that was my, that was plan A was I was hoping I would just bring this information to them and and they would deal with it. And then I began to see how the trustee board was operating. And that was extremely disheartening. And it, and it really came down to a crisis point where I felt like either I go public wow. or this will never get cleaned up. And so that's what I did. Did you at some point in that process, because I've heard like people who've critiqued, like, you know, who made her a whistleblower. And it's so nice to hear that. Like you're really your best scenario was like, deal with the mess. Like our goal is not to expose it. I mean, you never went out and going, yeah, fire me. Like, because of course, by then you must have known if I go public, my job is at risk. I mean, I would imagine you're smart enough to understand that. And so 
I think, you know, what was vertically speaking, because I really believe in God's call and God leading and, and people, you know, often question, well, how do you know God wants you to take a pool with five other people? But, but when you know God wants you to do something, you have to act in obedience. Otherwise, you're sinning against the Lord. Did you have that sense at that point when it was time to go public? Um, yeah. And even along this whole process, um, there was a group and even with both what happened at Moody with that investigation and also what's happening at Harvest, there's a whole group behind the scenes praying. Um, in fact, I remember the day that uh, I went out to meet with the trustees, there was a whole group of people that were praying and fasting that day. And we were praying and fasting the week before that I would be able to reach them and contact them. And um, so much praying and fasting went into this. Mm. And, and people don't know that. Um, but there was, and there was a group that was constantly praying. Um, and I was updating and um, prayer was such a big part of this. And I really, really sensed that the Holy Spirit was in it and that he was calling me to do this. And um, I remember very specifically on the day I was about ready to press publish. And I was terrified, Lenny, because I, it wasn't so much losing my job because I knew, I knew I'd lose my job, right? Um, but I also, at that point, my career was taken off. I had just published this book. Um, I was supposed to be emceeing Founders Week, which would have been an incredible opportunity. And I remember um, there were book signings and everything for that week. And it would have exposed me and the book to like thousands of people. And then I was supposed to speak at Harvest, ironically, at their women's conference. And um, and then there were other radio programs, big programs that I was going to get on. I knew all of them were publicly canceled. I knew it. And, um, and I just remember thinking, you know, if I lose that, I'm okay with mm. it because I was a housewife before and I was happy as a housewife. <laughs> and, and if the Lord gave me a platform to use and I shrunk at the moment that he asked me to use it, yeah. well, then I wasn't worthy of the platform and I shouldn't have it anyway. And so it was really, it was a a wrestling before the Lord, but I gave it up. I mean, I just gave it all up because I figured I'd lose everything. And I, you know, I was okay. Well, and it's, well, it's ironic because later on, like James, like, oh, she's just upset because we canceled her speaking gig, which it's funny because there's like it was a tidbit compared to all the other stuff that you had for it for a season, really. And, and I mean, to now, like, I mean, I don't know what your relationship was with, with Moody now, but there are a lot of people you've still risked a lot. And maybe in some ways it has cost you a lot to do the work you're doing. But certainly one speaking gig at a church <laughs> is a tiny sliver compared to everything else. Like, it's just funny that that somebody would think that that would be your greatest disappointment in life. I mean, there's so much that. That that could you know I, I really and I mean and and I think truthfully when you first put the Moody report out I'll be honest I mean because I knew you but it was like I, I couldn't tell if I should defend you or not say anything and like so there's this I'm loyal to Moody I still do the today single Christian at Moody and so there's this sort of tension that happens but I'll tell you one thing. I saw some things change at Moody and simple. I mean, I don't know anything on the inside. I'm very peripheral to the organization. I love Moody, mm -hmm. but I did see that there were a couple of positions that were changed and an interim past uh, leader and now a permanent leader who I love, uh, Mark Job. But I think um, that sort of spoke to itself to me. I mean, I didn't say much publicly, but I kind of thought, hmm, well, I mean, 
she can't be lying about stuff if this happened. I mean, I'm just a dumb ER doctor, right? I mean, I don't know a whole lot, but I was like, this is fascinating. And so I, I just didn't feel like, like people were watching very carefully if they didn't put, you know, one plus one equals two. And then, of course, you go straight from that and just to kind of jump into the harvest stuff, um, right into the deep end. Like you just, you know, jumped into that. And by the time, and, and honestly, there were some things even as a person who I wasn't part of the elephant debt, I left Harvest and say anything for four years, just recently wrote a statement about why I left. But there was a sort of sense in me like, man, I wonder if Julie will ever do anything about the situation there. Cause I knew that there were some things that were not right. And so when I finally, you know, heard a few months later, I hadn't talked to you at all from the time we had that lunch. I don't think you and I had any conversation until um, in the very recent past and, and a very brief conversation at that. But I remember thinking, well, that didn't surprise me very much. It almost felt like your destiny. And that is from someone who, again, I call you a friend, but really we've never even had a meal since that time. So, I mean, but you understand, like, even I was like, that, that just makes sense to me that Julie is handling this now. And did that sort of feel like that to you? Like it was sort of the next logical thing or did you fight the Harvest expose as it got presented to you by some of the members who had left? Well, you know, honestly, Lena, when I was done with the Moody thing, um, and it was tough. It, it, that was, I would say that was much harder on me emotionally than the harvest investigation because I found people that, it, that, that at one point were like, please go speak for us. Please do this. You know, uh, one minute we're like that. And then the minute that the tide turned and I was made into, you know, <laughs> number one, all of a sudden, then they're like against me. And I'm like, what? Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was shocking to me. And it was shocking how quickly people turned on the me. Villain. And, and, it yeah. was, and it was hard too, because I had people who went on the record and then they'd call me up after I went public, you know, and I hadn't told that part of the story. And they'd be begging and pleading with me not to use their story that they had gone on the record. And I'm like, you realize you, you just put me up on the front lines and now you've retreated and left me out there by myself. Thank you. And it was just so emotionally wow. grueling, um, the, the whole thing. And then I found at a certain point, people just, it's like insulting their grandmother or wow. something, right? I mean, they love Moody. And I love Moody. I still love Moody. Um, and I didn't want, I never wanted to hurt Moody. It's because I loved Moody that I did something. Um, but I could tell they just, they didn't care if it was true. They just didn't want to hear it because right. it was enough. And they, they just didn't want to hear any bad stuff. And I'm like, okay. Um, so I came out of that just kind of wanting to do another investigative report like I wanted a hole in the head, you know? I mean, no thanks, you know? And I remember getting contacted by um, R.T. Moldner, who I just, he's, I, I just had so much appreciation for this guy. But he was a campus pastor at Elgin, and um, he had uh, bucked the system and left the church and you know his whole story is in the world magazine article I wrote so I won't even go into it but um he contacted me and said Julie would you please look into what's going on at Harvest it's it, what's happening there is so bad and and you just need to look into it and I was just I was like well you realize James McDonald is is like a giant and I'm like I don't even know that I'm David I think I'm a flea compared to him I mean I'm like he will crush me. And, and he, he said, well, will you just hear our stories? And so I began hearing these stories and they broke my heart. Yeah. I mean, it just absolutely broke my heart, not just for them, but, but for the purity of the church. And, and this probably breaks my heart more than anything is what's happening to God's church right now. And the, the corruption 
that has woven its way, not just through Harvest, but through the entire evangelical, and I talk about it, the, the evangelical celebrity machine and the infrastructure, it's so bad. And, and when I realized the, the level of depravity that was going on at Harvest, I mean, it became the sort of thing where I felt like I, I couldn't shrink back from it. Like, again, I felt like I got drafted. And, and I knew that, you know, once people told me their stories, well, then now I've got to steward these stories. What do I do with them? And, um, and then, I, honestly, Harvest kind of jumped the gun with me because it was while I was doing my investigation, um, I reached out to them, which is always my practice. I, I always will reach out to the other side and give them an opportunity to give their side of the story. So I was reaching out to some people. And uh, and that's when they slapped me with this lawsuit. Let's yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Did it surprise you that technique? Uh, yeah, it, it shocked me actually. I mean, not just because it was just so clearly an an attempt at prior restraint, which is unconstitutional. So initially, it was not just a lawsuit, but it was a temporary restraining order. So they were trying to get the judge to stop me from reporting. And the judge threw it out. I mean, she recognized immediately it was unconstitutional. Well, I'll be honest. I remember remember being in my home and hearing about the lawsuit and just thinking, even, I mean, I don't know the law, but I was like, that just sounds like the stupidest thing anybody could do. And I I say it respectfully. I mean, again, I'm I'm a a silly, stupid ER doctor. Like, I don't have a big brain. I just go, you know, you get admitted to the hospital, you go home. That is like my categories, right? But even I, even... Even I looked at this and thought, man, this just seems like he's trying to, you know, trying to hide something. Like, I didn't understand that. And I read the articles that came out after Christianity Today. And today, of course, we'll put some links at the bottom of the podcast that sort of direct to some of the highlighted articles, like the Initial World magazine. And, and you know, I, I, I don't know that I want to put the recording of the Main Cow show, but it is telling because the conversations that happen show so much corruption that took place behind the scene that sort of the conniving that took place about this whole lawsuit. But the lawsuit, in my opinion, was one of the dumbest ideas that anybody could have if you're not trying to hide something. Was that your reaction or were you, because frankly, I mean, every doctor's greatest fear is to be sued, right? And so were you afraid? What was your reaction humanly to that? Well, I think I knew from the beginning that it was baseless. I mean, when I read it, it was just so ridiculous. And the things I was accused of were so far from the truth that I knew that I had truth on my side. And I also, you know, I went to journalism school and I know the law. I know that when you're a public figure, not only does he have to prove that I proved something, that I, that I published something false, but that I knew it was false. And I still published it because he's a public figure. The, the standard is so high, but I didn't even publish anything at that point. So, so listen, you know, and I knew what it was. And it was just an, an intimidation tactic. Um, but sure, I mean, I was scared. I, I don't have my husband and I don't have a lot of money, and really, God. I mean, you're not getting paid to do the reports, right? I mean, it's not like you have a job. You're right. You're just. asking <laughs> the other day. They're like, they're like, so, so, like, how are you making money? And I'm like, I just laughed. I'm like. Your husband, your husband's a teacher, right? If I recall, I mean, like, 
I mean, it's the whole thing is hilarious. And so, 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 but you're, yeah, you're a little scared, but you're, but at what point, cause I later in, in following, like it's, it, it ended up being really, and I really think this was from the Lord. I really do. And now that so much more has been exposed. I mean, at the time, remember you put yourself back two or three months ago, we didn't know as much as we know now. And so it's always easier to be like, oh, of course. But, but at the time, I mean, you were still the bad guy. James was a, you know, untouchable pastor. I mean, a lot of the stuff that maybe people knew in private wasn't made known yet. And, and, and so, and so, but I felt like when it started to, things started to maybe turn a little bit was sort of this aha moment when it became known that because you were sued, you had access to some information. When did you realize that? Well, it's kind of funny because James had hired this DUI lawyer. It was Mankow's lawyer. Um, so he was a little fish out of water uh, with his whole lawsuit. And, and when they, when the lawyers first appeared in court, he hadn't spindled the case correctly, which I never even knew what spindling was, but it's some sort of procedure that lawyers are supposed to do. And if they don't do it, well, he didn't do it. And the judge said, uh, we're not hearing this today because you didn't spindle the case. But kind of an embarrassing thing. Um, and all the lawyers were, were dismissed. And we, my lawyer told me that, that that counted as an appearance and I could start subpoenaing people. Well, I guess his lawyer didn't, <laughs> didn't relay that information to uh, James. And so uh, I remember at that point, I thought, well, this is kind of a reporter's dream because I knew where all the bodies were buried, so to speak. I'd done enough reporting at that time that I knew um, that there was a lot of bad stuff, but some of it was hard to get because so many people, so many of the sources, mm. uh, former staff or elders or whatever, they had many of them had signed non-disclosure agreements and they were afraid of sharing the information or just there's there's this thing in the Christian community where we just never want to speak publicly badly about each other. And, and, and some of that's good. Um, but scripture is very clear. I mean, Ephesians 5.11 have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Or 1 Timothy 5.20 that says that when there's an elder who's sinning, that you're supposed to publicly expose him. And so we're actually commanded in scripture to do this. And I think it's it's absolutely a prophetic, a godly, a right, and, and good, righteous thing to do, to call out sin in public figures who are unrepentant and continue to do this. So, uh, so having subpoena power allowed me to go to some of those people who really wanted to tell me things and wanted to release information, but were afraid to go on the record. And so that's what I did. I started subpoenaing them, started getting the information. Um, and when they realized what I was doing and what I had, they were terrified. And, um, and that, well, they, they first tried to get the judge to suppress all the information I had. And the, when the judge refused to do that, yes, that's when they dropped the suit. Yeah. You think you would have had so much more information if they hadn't dropped the suit about stuff that people are still asking now? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I knew this would never go to trial. I knew it would never get a trial because I knew that there was so much wrongdoing there. And, and I, to this day, I wish, I wish I still had subpoena power because there's so much financial wrongdoing that I'm quite sure is there, but I can't prove it. Um, I'm quite sure there's much more than what I uncovered, but uh, again, it, it's going to take a forensic audit or something like that to uncover all. 
one of the yeah one of the sort of critics of you like in general the sentiment is and and even I've heard James I think in the Macau thing kind of alluded to it on the records on the some of the tapes that I heard is this idea that hey she's butting into our church like this is how we want to run things this is and and to some degree I think maybe I've tried to give the benefit of why hasn't the greater evangelical community said much about this because I think a lot of people have witnessed some of the quote unquote bad behavior that you know we that is now sort of like people know as the James McDonald. And so nobody said anything. And I've sort of watched the story unfold for months. And honestly, for me, and for people who had left like me, there's a big fear factor. And I, again, I wrote about that in my blog recently that's connected to so many people. But but some people shouldn't have been afraid. Now, now the argument I think that I can buy into is, okay, this is their church. They run it the way they want. And if the people stay there, then it's none of our business. And so you, you're right about like, well, if the elders sinful, expose them. But how, how have you... Like, whose job is it then to stand up for justice in a situation like this where we're going, well, we want to be, you know, blissfully deluded about this stuff or or whatever. Like, the people who disagree with it left. I didn't want to leave the church, but I just couldn't add it up. I couldn't stay in an environment that seemed like it was very corrupt. And even though I didn't have all the facts, I had enough to say, this is not where I need to be. And it, it cost me, you know, personally, not, glo- you know, not openly, but personally in my heart, my soul, it cost me a lot. But whose job is it to go after justice in those situations? And, and, and can you talk into that a bit? Like, when does it stop be- being just a church issue, a local church issue, and maybe a bigger Christian community issue? Yeah, well, and, and that's what's so difficult because scripture is clear that the first line of defense is supposed to be the leaders of the church, right? I mean, those are the ones that are supposed to, to hold them accountable. And it should have been the elders that took care of this problem. Um, now, what happened at Harvest, not only do you have elders who were pledging unconditional support to James, which is ridiculous. How can you hold somebody accountable that you're unconditionally supporting? Um, but beyond that, uh, he had restructured the board in such a way that, that the larger elder board of 34 right. um, had no power whatsoever. Um, they didn't oversee the money. They didn't know how much any of the top executives, including James McDonald, how much they made, and all of the McDonald family as well, because they were all on the payroll. Um, they didn't even uh, agree to the legal contract. All of that was handled by this small group called the executive committee of like, four to five of James's handpicked guys who were doing it. So the elder board completely did not do its job. And so when you have a situation where you have a, really a wolf in, in sheep's clothing or a shepherd's clothing, right? Because he's supposed to be protecting the sheep. Instead, he's preying on the sheep. He's robbing the sheep. Um, he's abusing the sheep. Well, then at that point, when the elders aren't doing their job and making sure that the shepherd is protecting them, and they're actually complicit in, in this abuse, then what do you do? And I think evangelicalism, is it's an interesting animal in a way, because, I mean, if you're in, say, a mainline denomination, there actually are steps you can appeal to the denomination to investigate. Or if you're in the Catholic Church, for example, you there's a whole system of, of going up. There's an authority structure, right, that's above the independent church. But we, we in evangelicalism really... We operate and the churches operate on a public trust and there is no set authority structure. And so I think that is when that as the community and and we actually talked about this a great deal and prayed about it um, myself and some of the sources that are involved with. and, And one of the joys of this whole harvest story has been getting to know some incredible 
incredibly godly people. Because I tell you, the former elders that I've gotten to know who left because they saw the evil that was happening there, such, such a godly group. But they just became convinced because I was like, you know, some of this stuff, I mean, it's illegal. And now some of the sort of Me Too stories that are coming out, I mean, that's like red meat to the secular mm. press. They love that stuff, right? Um, we, we really prayed about it. And we felt like the Lord was saying that judgment begins in the house of God. And that the best thing to do would be uh, for me to report it, but to, to do it within yeah. Christian yeah. media. And so I was really glad that I was able to report um, report what I did with World Magazine and to stay in the Christian media. Now, I'm not saying that I think it's wrong to go to the secular media with some of these stories. I know Willow Creek, uh, for example, when the sexual harassment charges came out against Bill Hybels, that first was broken in the Chicago Tribune. And I think that accelerated the process because it's such a huge platform. But I think in evangelicalism, we have to look at the, the, the press as uh, fulfilling that function of the body. And that's one way, I think, um, that we tell, like, tell the whole church about what is happening. And then the whole church decides. And it's funny, people say, well, who made you judge and jury? And I'm not judge and jury. I can give my opinion. But mostly what I do is I just try to report the truth. I try to inform the church because you can't do anything if you don't know what the truth is. So I feel like that's my function. Um, it's sort of a more prophetic function, I think, um, within the church. But to be able to tell the truth and let the church know the truth and then let the church deal with it. And But they can't deal with it unless they know what that truth is. And so I, I think it's an important function. And I hope the church is beginning to see that it's an important function and will stop this ridiculousness about every time um, that there's reports that you don't like calling it division or gossip or dissension. I mean, it's not gossip. I, I verify everything that I report and, and really rigorously. Well, has it surprised you how many people are still sort of like, I still catch people kind of defending, you know, James even. I, I mean, it just surprises me, you know, and, and I don't know what to do with that sometimes. And I think, do you think Christians, we just don't want to hear the truth sometimes? Or do you think that the ramifications of the truth can be too painful for people to bear? Well, I think we've made idols out of our leaders. It's idolatry. And, and we have made, the whole celebrity culture is, is based on idolatry. And sometimes I really wonder, are we worshiping Jesus Christ? Or are we worshiping James McDonald or, you know, fill in the blank or even institutions? Um, I mean, even with Moody, it's like some people are just like wanting to plug their ears and, and not hear it because they love the institution. It meant so much to them. And I, and I understand that. And I understand the pain of it. And I yeah. don't want to minimize that because I know people are really coming out, especially of Harvest, just so wounded by this. But yeah, yeah. I mean, so so much. I mean, some people. I mean, I know a story after story of people who have left the faith, which you can say, you know, hey man, it's faith is you know God predestines, and you can have a, a theological argument about all of this stuff. But at the end of this, people who used to believe fervently Jesus Christ is Lord, and now because of the example of a pastor, they don't want anything to do with the churches, and that to me is so heartbreaking. And let alone just people who are wounded. So this. You know, the whole thing is really, really sad to me. I felt a heaviness about it all. Have you behind the scenes gotten some surprise? You don't have to obviously give names. In fact, I probably wouldn't. But people who have been like, you know, maybe outsiders, you know, 
leaders, evangelical leaders who might have you know emailed you or called you and been like, hey, we appreciate what you did, even though they may be scared to go on records, or have people avoided talking to you in this post you know, debacle season? Well, I would say probably one of my greatest disappointments has been the silence of top evangelical leaders. They haven't spoken, hardly at all. And the truth is, many of them knew it. And they knew about it years ago. And it's, mm-hmm. it, it is, it like all. you were saying, yep. it's fear and it's money. It's those two things, fear and money, is what drives the silence of the church. And yeah. it's a huge problem where we have people with large platforms who, quite frankly, are cowards. And it's it's uh, if I sound a little perturbed, I, I guess I am because I I would not have had to do a lot of what I've done if the the men in leadership throughout the, the evangelical church who knew this was going on if they had stepped up and done their job I wouldn't have had to do anything and frankly I don't want to do anything right well and and, and you know it's it, it is true it's it, it is a bit shocking to me that aspect of it to this day i felt like christianity today was even at the beginning i know that's been scrutinized a bit I, their initial report that came out was really disappointing to me i wrote a letter to the editor since then i have uh, that was in, in private i didn't publicize it but but i was a little like kind of at the time i was really afraid to talk about all this stuff still even then before james was fired i did not feel a freedom or let go or whatever word you want to use there i didn't feel like this freedom maybe it was self-preservation maybe it was fear of who knows what but it was really after that and i think ct has come around and 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 i think you know they've been much more balanced since then and i've vocalized that to some of the writers which i think they're sort of caught between a rock and a hard place but it was if i'm honest besides just disappointing somewhat i felt hurt by that even though i don't know these leaders they don't know me but i felt like why aren't they defending why aren't they saying something that was so obvious to me and 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 maybe you know maybe Maybe I'm looking at things in a different perspective. Again, maybe for people on the inside, they're going, well, it's not obvious. You're the evil one. Uh, did you, do you think social media has helped or hurt this whole process? Oh, it's helped. Yeah, a great deal because social media has really given power to the people so that, so that people are able to even bypass the gatekeepers. I mean, World Magazine was great in publishing that initial article, but <laughs> they were, after that, yeah. they were kind of checking the winds and they didn't know if they wanted to publish anymore. And if I didn't have a blog and social media and have a platform, so much of this would not have gotten out, out because that's what I had to do. And, and once he sued me, uh, once James McDonald and Harvest Bible Chapel sued me, um, a lot of the secular media, even that I, that if I wanted to go and even Christian media, like I went to Christianity today, I went to religion news service and they're like, sorry, you know, you were sued. <laughs> we, you know, you kind of become radioactive at that point because nobody wants to touch you or they feel like you, yeah, you can't so. be objective. Um, and, and I'm the first to say, yeah, objectivity is somewhat of a farce, but it's a farce with everybody. Um, it, what I try to be wow. is fair and, and to just reveal whatever whatever influences that I would have, but I always try to be fair and I always give the other side a chance to speak. Um, But I, you know, even if you look at the press coverage, I think you're right in being frustrated with Christianity today. I'm frustrated with Christianity today. I've spoken with Mark Galley, the managing or the uh, editor in chief there. And I don't know if you heard the latest 
um, Man Cow podcast, but he played more of these tapes that were privately recorded. And one of them is a conversation with Christianity Today, the conversation that led to Christianity Today giving um, giving space in their article for James McDonald, a plaintiff in a lawsuit, to make his case that suing other believers is biblical. And, and I expressed to Mark Daly my frustration that he never even came to me and asked for our side of the story. He never, he, we didn't get any chance to give an argument in Christianity today. And I, I just thought that was shameful. And I thought it was shameful that after my World Magazine article published, they published an article which was Harvest Denies World article. And then they, they published the entire Harvest um, press release in the article verbatim. And it was one of the most manipulative press releases I've ever seen. I mean, the language in that. In fact, I posted to my, my blog uh, a professor who's just really an expert on spiritual abuse. And he just unpacks the tactics that were used against us in that press release and how abusive and manipulative it was. Well, I mean, I, I, I did listen to that podcast, and I'm still surprised that they haven't made a statement about it. And, and again, I, I just shrug it off as, well, what do I know about it? I'm just a doctor. You know what I mean? It's, but it's crazy to me because it doesn't make any sense. And, and others, there are other people that are named in that. In that um, and, you know, I, well, I tell you, I'm backtracking. I mean, I um, was the day that you wrote and published, the, the day that you had sent and whatever World, World Magazine published your article, I was sitting at the Wheaton Auditorium having spent the day at the hashtag Me Too or Church Two conference at Stetzer was talking about spiritual abuse in the hour that I read your article. And I remember texting a friend of mine who was one of the speakers. And I said to her, what are you guys going to do about this sort of abuse now? Speak up. And nobody said a word. And to this day, no one is saying anything. And I think, what are they still trying to protect? And I think that is the kind of thing that angers me. When you talk about justice rising up in you, I can't, I don't have the sophistication to, to, to do anything but be angry and frustrated about it. And I, and I try to apply Sarah Sumner's angry like Jesus without going to the other side. And I'm sure I am way, you know, too human to have the, the right responses and anger, but it, it really does frustrate me and upset me. And I, and I sometimes think, man, I don't want to hear another word about harvest, about, about, about James McDonald, about anything that has the word Donald in it at this point, because I get so aggravated over what's happening. And and, 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 and I appreciate even expressing that now. And I'm sure many people listening to the podcast might be frustrated with that. I sort of hear that when Mankow speaks too, because I think there's a point in your brain where you go, this isn't right. And I don't know who's going to make it right, but God, please, we beg you, make this right. And I think for that, Julie, I think even when people misunderstand you, I think they have to have an appreciation for what you've done and for the risks that you've taken to take care of business, so to speak. Well, I hope so. I, you know, I, at the very least, I hope people are open to just considering what's been written. And I want to ask you one thing, though, before I know we're coming towards the end of the time that I usually spend on the podcast, but I do want to go there a minute. Talk a little bit about the Anne Green angle. And I know I don't mean an angle in that I trust everything she said. I believe her. I believe she's a very godly woman. But many people have critiqued the timing of her uh, quote unquote confession. Like, you know, why now? He's already fired. His kids are resigned. Of course, she stated her, made her statements on the Mankow show about um, the abuse that she felt at the hands of James McDonald. She made those before the sons had resigned. But what do you think of all of that? Further stories of abuse unfolding. Speak to the critics that say, why now? Well, Anne went on the record with me back in end of September. So she was one of the first courageous people to go on the record 
uh, with that kind of, well, at all. I mean, I just, she was, I was just blown away when she went on the record and, and talked to me about it. Um, and it actually was just about two weeks before the lawsuit that I reached out to Sandy Song, who was one of the women who was on the plane with and when this alleged incident happened, when, you know, James McDonald allegedly grabbed her in the, you know, on her leg, very near her private area. Um, and so I reached out to Sandy and then within several days, um, she had returned to me an email with three statements from the two other people that were on the plane and all of them said they didn't see anything. And so, you know, as a journalist, I mean, I've watched these Me Too stories um, and we were very, very strict on our standards of what we would report and what we wouldn't in the World Magazine article, for example, because James McDonald was a pastor. He was an elder. And, you know, First Timothy 5 again says you don't bring a charge against an elder without two or three witnesses. And so all of the incidents that I reported in that World Magazine article had two or three witnesses. So here I've got. Uh, a woman who says she was abused on a plane, and I've got three eyewitnesses who say they didn't see anything. And so that, that's pretty tough. I mean, I, I don't know what to do with that. And so, you know, then I had talked to, I'd reached out to Matt Stoll, um, who was on the worship team at the time, and he was really surprised. He's like, well, I knew about that story. And he's like, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think everybody who was uh, a worship leader at that time, we all knew about that story. And I don't remember anybody saying it didn't happen. So he was very surprised by that. And there there is somewhat of a conundrum even right now. It's like, from my reporting, we know that Mankow, for example, he heard about it completely independent of the church. He heard about it from the owner of the jet airplane, the Seedorfs, told him about it. Um, We know that all these worship leaders knew that something had happened there. We know that Anne didn't supposedly talk to anybody about it. So how was it that so many people found out about it? You know, I mean, how, how did that happen? But the reason I reported it is because Anne wanted to tell it. And she went to Mankow and told it. And when she did that, then, but this is what's interesting, is that got other people to talk about it. So then I began to get more people corroborating her story. Um, so, so, yeah. Right. Well, and I would argue that you don't, there's no timing to these stories. Like, you you know, it doesn't matter whether it's before firing, after firing, whether Harvest makes it or not. I mean, these are irrelevant points. And and, and I I I believe that there may be uh, more, you know, you start Mm -hmm. talking about something, you start shedding light. It's like an infection. I mean, the best example I have, you know, somebody comes in with abdominal pain, you start looking, you see an infection and you keep digging and you see that it's deeper and deeper and deeper. And you you only get to the root of it as you open things up and start to, to to get more data and I see that happen in the human body and you're seeing it happen of course in your investigative um, uh, work that you've done uh, man I mean this is I know this is heavy this is a lot of stuff maybe we'll end with this uh, what are you doing next Julie when all of the dust settles and maybe also to tail to that how has the saga impacted your walk with the Lord and your spiritual life so sort of what's next and how are you with the Lord well um, well let me do the what's next first um, because I am in the process right now of launching, hopefully, a, a daily radio program. And we're getting sponsors right now. Uh, and we're looking to launch maybe in April, if we can get the, all the sponsorship in time. Um, but we're also going to cr- be crowdfunding for that and allowing people to get on board. Because this is going to be a program that I actually own. Uh, and we purchase 
the airtime. So it's going to run on Salem Radio in Chicago on WYLL wow. uh, initially, but then I also have a number of other stations, like a couple in uh, Nevada who want to take it and up in Minnesota and um, different different places. So we'd like to just get launched here and then uh, begin to expand the program uh, elsewhere as the Lord allows. Um, how am I doing with the Lord? Um, I mean, I'm good with the Lord, but I'm, I, I feel spent. I, I will say that. And actually, I was talking to a girlfriend last night who God has given me just these incredibly godly people around me who have been such an incredible support. But we were even talking. Uh, in fact, I sent a, a link to her this morning because she's going to get three or four women together. and We're just going to go on a, on a retreat, a 24-hour retreat. And, and they're going to pray for me. And they're going to pray over me. And they're going to help me discern things. And that's where, to me, the, the body of Christ and and the people that he puts around us. Um, I could not do this by myself. And I know it looks a lot like, you know, I've got the blog and I write it, right? But I, I couldn't do it without the body and without people who pray and support me and love on me. And I'm so, so grateful for that. So, I mean, I feel like Jesus has called me to do this. I feel like um, he is pleased when I, when I pursue that call and when I obey him. And I believe that he also, when I, fail him. I, I don't feel like I've been perfect in everything I've done. I feel like I've made mistakes. Um, and his grace has been sufficient for me for all of that. And um, I'm just so grateful to be used by him um, and to be able to speak into these things and to make a difference. I mean, that's that's what we all want with our lives, right? Is to, to make a difference for the kingdom because this life is like a breath. It only lasts a very short amount of time. And, and so I want to make my life count for eternity. And I feel so grateful that it is counting for eternity as I submit it to him and let him do with it whatever he wants. And so it's an incredible privilege to serve Jesus and to serve the church. And I hope and pray that that, that at the end of the day will, will be what I've done and that the, the church will be stronger and more purified, and more holy and acceptable to him as a result. Amen. Well, we will pray for that. I believe that is the hope that I hold on to, that God is working out his best and his good and his glory through this mess. And so we thank you for taking the time. Just a couple of things here, guys, as we come to an end, uh, Julie will give us ways to contact her in a second, but we're going to have all of the links that are relevant. Uh, we'll put some of the highlighted articles for you to access if you want to just ca get caught up on some of what's been happening, what we've been talking about. I'm going to give away two of Julie's books so first two people that email me, uh, we will be giving away her uh, book. And so uh, you're going to love that. She talks about feminism and uh, she is a strong woman, but you might be surprised at what she believes about women and their role. So you'll want to get that book, even if you don't win it. And um, as usual, if y'all um, want to connect with Julie, Julie, give them uh, maybe your website and how they can reach you. Sure. Just go to julieroy, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com. And you can connect with me, read blogs, podcasts, all sorts of stuff I've done. So that's a place to go. You can follow her on Twitter too. That's been really fun. And I think that's also at Julie Royce. Is that right? Actually, it's at Reach Julie Royce. And the same with Facebook is at Reach Julie Royce. If you're, if you're plugging in the uh, Facebook.com slash Reach Julie Royce. Awesome. Well, a lot of good stuff. You you talk about other things other than just harvest. And so I always feel like I, I get up to speed on what's happening in the world, especially the Christian world and whatnot. So thank you, Julie, for your time. It's, this has been a really great conversation, a lot to chew on, a lot to pray about. 
But as always, we end this podcast by reminding ourselves that we hope put our hope in Jesus. And that is um, that is where we rest at the end of the day. Hey, if you guys uh, have anything on your mind, you want to email me. I, I, today, I don't feel like I really want to give out my email in case there are people who disagree with the conversation we had. But no, we are here to listen to everything and to pray over uh, anything that you might have. So Lena at livingwithpower.org. We love you guys. I'll be back next week with a new guest, a new show. Have a great one today and take care.